everyone. My name is Laurel Conrad. I'm the program director at the Claire Booth Loose Policy Institute. Thank you for joining us today for our first of our July CWNs. Um, I'd like to give a special thank you to Alina Richardson, um, who is co-hosting with us today. Thank you so much to the Heritage Foundation. Um, I'm honored to do introduce today Margie Ross, um, who I've personally worked with and have really enjoyed getting to know. Um, Margie is the president and publisher of Regnery Publishing, the nation's leading publisher of conservative books. She joined Regnery in 1999 as vice president and general manager and took over as president and publisher in 2003, making her the first person outside of the Regnery family to hold that position. During her tenure, Regnery has placed more than 70 books on the New York Best Times bestseller list, including 11 titles at number one. Prior to joining Ragnary, Margie worked as a senior group publisher for the large newsletter for a large newsletter publisher, Phillips International. In her early career, Margie was a business editor and writer. Margie graduated from Dartmouth College with a BA in English and earned her master's in journalism from the American University in Washington, DC. She's a popular speaker for both the conservative movement and the publishing industry, and one of the most highly rated speakers for us at CBLPI. She serves as a board member and was named our Woman of the Year in 2005. She's a tremendous role model for young conservative women, both professionally and personally. She has three daughters, all currently in college or graduate school, and she and her husband, Chuck, live in Northern Virginia. Please join me in welcoming Margie Ross. Thank you so much. Thank you, Laurel, Elena. Very happy to be here. Welcome. Thanks for uh, joining us on a hot July afternoon. Um, as you know, I am uh, the I'm Margie Ross. I'm the president and publisher of Regnery Publishing. We've been the country's leading conservative book publisher, as you heard, for the past 70 years. And I've been at Regnery not quite that long, but uh, for the past 17 years, 14 years as president and publisher. And uh, we've seen a lot of change in the country, in the conservative movement, and in book publishing in those 17 years. And I could spend the next half hour talking about how Amazon is taking over the book publishing world, or ebooks are displacing print books, or Donald Trump, or Hillary Clinton. Um, but Today, I want to talk to you about a change in our culture that I find disturbing and one I think every book publisher, not to mention every one of us and every American, needs to pay attention to and needs to fight. Um, the title of my speech, as someone asked me just a few minutes ago, is Tamper Proof Packaging. And you may be wondering what, uh, what that has to do with book publishing or the future of our country or even what that means. Um, so let me start by sharing with you a story. This, as it happens, is not my own story, but a story told to me by my rabbi, a very insightful and wonderful man with whom I disagree on virtually every political issue you can name, um, but who identified this change in our culture that I want to talk about in a wonderful and uh, interesting way. Rabbi Art is an aficionado of classical music. He loves opera, he loves the symphony, he loves Isaac Stern and Yo-Yo Ma, 
And so he was very excited uh, last year when a friend of his gave him a new CD of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. For several years now, my rabbi has noticed that the packaging on these CDs has become more and more difficult to open, right? Those child-proof, tamper-proof, hard plastic sealing things. Um, there's no obvious way to open them. And there's no tab to pull or perforation to tear. You just have to you kind of turn the things over in your hands and wonder how in the world you're going to open the thing. So when Rabbi Art got his new CD, entombed as it was in hard plastic, he struggled to open it. He tried to pry it open and peel it back. He poked it with his pen to try to kind of puncture it and get a hole in there to start. Um, when that didn't work, he got out his scissors and he tried to orient his scissors with the package, but that wouldn't work either. So he eventually got his kitchen knife out and he sort of started to saw through the packaging. And, uh, and he did manage to start cutting it open. Um, and as he pulled it back, he cut his hand on the ragged edge of the plastic, which still wasn't really open wide enough to kind of pry out the CD. So finally, after cutting his hand and uttering a few words that rabbis are not supposed to say out loud, he, uh, he managed to rip the plastic open wide enough to drag out the CD. And by this point, he said to me, his excitement was gone. His delight at the prospect of listening to this wonderful music was extinguished. He was so exhausted and so frustrated, he just tossed the CD onto his couch and decided he'd listen to it later. And that is my metaphor for America today. We have allowed our fear of dangers, real and imagined, our demand for security and safety at all costs, to overwhelm our love of liberty. Now, in Rabbi Art's opinion, societies swing on a pendulum from the love of liberty and the excitement of risk-taking and adventure and discovery on one hand to the desire for security and safety and comfort on the other side. And he believes when we swing too far in one direction, the pendulum will eventually swing back. I'm not so sure. I'm not as confident that the good sense of average Americans and the weight of centuries of experience will be able to overcome the powerful forces at work in our society who are intent on protecting us from harm. Sadly, I think this all started with 9-11. As terrible as it was to lose 3,000 innocent Americans on a single day, as we were reminded of yesterday in France, um, I believe it's just as tragic to lose our national will to cherish and fight for liberty over safety. Liberty is inherently risky. It's fraught with danger and uncertainty. It flies without a safety net. It requires personal responsibility and integrity on every level. Liberty means you're free to pursue your dreams and you're free to fail. You're free to make your own decisions and you're free to make stupid mistakes. You're free to voice your opinion 
and others are free to offend and insult you with theirs. Security is much more comfy. And after 9-11, security was what we wanted, what we demanded. In many ways, um, I've come to think that the entire country was suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. Stop and consider this for a minute. PTSD is defined as, I'll read you the definition, a mental disorder that can develop after a person is exposed to a traumatic event, such as warfare, traffic collisions, or other threats on a person's life. In the typical case, an individual with PTSD persistently avoids trauma-related thoughts and emotion and discussion of the traumatic event. While it's common to have symptoms after any traumatic event, symptoms must persist for longer than one month after the trauma to be classified as PTSD. So I guess 15 years qualifies nicely. In the wake of 9-11, we got the Department of Homeland Security. We got TSA. In Great Britain, home of the shoe bomber, you don't have to take off your shoes to go through security at the airport. But here in America, we're taking off our shoes and our belts and dumping out our water bottles thanks to 9-11. Very few of us think this actually makes us any safer. But we feel like we're doing something. All those officers and uniforms and badges at the security line, it's all very comforting. But meanwhile, political correctness prevents us from taking any sensible security measures, like profiling, because that might hurt someone's feelings. Because you see, another manifestation of our national obsession with safety is everyone must now live in a cocoon of personal security to shield them from pain. We've all become the bubble boy, not only unwilling, but increasingly unable to withstand the rough and tumble world of everyday life. The Wikipedia entry on PTSD contains something really interesting. It says, early intervention appears to be a critical preventive measure. Studies have shown that soldiers prepared for the potential of a traumatic experience are more prepared to deal with the stress of a traumatic event and less likely to experience PTSD. Makes sense. So in other words, if you want to be strong, you have to learn how to take a punch. Or as one of my publicity directors used to say, it's time to put your big boy pants on. My concern is that we as a country are telling our children and each other that it's fine not to put your big boy pants on. Just keep wearing those diapers and the nanny state will take care of everything. We're refusing to prepare ourselves and our children for real life. And we're allowing the government to take from us more and more of the responsibility to protect and defend ourselves. So as schools outlaw kickball and jungle gyms and books they find offensive, and founding fathers, they find too white or too male. We lose the ability to think critically and to protect and defend ourselves and our ideas. This is very troubling to me as a book publisher, as a parent, as a voter, as an American. 
how many of you work out regularly? How many people work out every day, every week, right? Every month. Good, once a week, good. So you know, that's the only way to stay in shape, right? Have you ever stopped exercising for a few weeks or a few months? Maybe you just got busy. Or you twisted your ankle, you strained a muscle, you sprained something. Um, the thing I always find so frustrating about exercise is how long it takes to build up your endurance and feel really good and how fast you lose it if you stop exercising for just a few days. I looked this up. Studies have shown that even conditioned athletes, meaning people who have been training regularly every day for at least a year, lose half their aerobic conditioning after three months of inactivity. I'm guessing most of you, certainly me, are not conditioned professional athletes. Well, I hate to tell you, but beginner exercisers or moderate exercisers who work out every day for two months experience a complete loss of all aerobic conditioning after two months of not working out. So we also know that uh, if you don't exercise, you can lose muscle strength, right? Experts call this disuse atrophy. It's even worse than you think. You don't just lose muscle when you stop exercising, your muscles actually change. So your endurance muscles and your strength-producing muscle fibers morph into easily fatigued, what they call couch potato muscle fibers. And that can happen in as little as 72 hours. I believe in the marathon of liberty, Americans have all become couch potatoes. We have Michael Bloomberg making sure we don't drink too much soda. We have Michelle Obama making sure we don't eat too much salt. We have the geniuses at Yale University making sure Halloween costumes don't offend anyone. And just in case, we've got universities across the country setting up safe rooms with crayons and Play-Doh, not kidding, so traumatized students can find a safe haven from ideas they find upsetting. That's an idea I find upsetting. You know, if we need to be protected from ideas we find upsetting, not only does that have a huge dampening effect on book publishing and book and publishing in general, but if we need to be protected from ideas we find upsetting, I believe we will quickly lose the ability to have original ideas. And we will surely lose the liberty to defend our right to have and voice our own ideas. Those muscles that we need to think independently and critically will suffer from disuse atrophy, and they will die. That's really bad news for a book publisher. And it's even worse news for those of us who care about America as the exceptional nation it once was. Now, we're trying at Regnery to fight that battle. Last year, we published a book by Kirsten Powers called The Silencing, which documents some really shocking examples of how the left is shutting down free speech and ideas they don't like on campuses um, under the guise of protecting people who might be upset by those ideas. This summer, we're publishing a book called See No Evil by Joel Pollack, 
which exposes the left's refusal to debate issues and ideas they don't like. They just won't debate them at all. They don't want to talk about them. Next year, we're publishing a book by Dr. Everett Piper, president of Oklahoma Wesleyan University, who gained some notoriety recently when he opined that a college is a university, not a daycare. Those fine authors echo the words of many great thinkers and writers before them. John Stuart Mill said, without free expression of opinion, there can be no progress in science, law, or politics. Benjamin Franklin said, whoever would overthrow the liberty of a nation must begin by subduing the freedom of speech. George Orwell said, if liberty means anything at all, it means the right to tell people what they do not want to hear. Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes said, if there is any principle of the Constitution that more imperatively calls for attachment, it is the principle of free thought. Not free thought for those who agree with us, but freedom for the thought we hate. A number of people have claimed credit for this one, including Voltaire and Oscar Wilde. And I like to say this one as well. I disapprove of what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. And of course that right is enshrined in the very First Amendment of our Bill of Rights, which forbids Congress to make any law abridging the freedom of speech or of the press. But we are seeing it happen all around us every day. So what do we do? How do we lean to one side and get that pendulum to swing back towards liberty? I'm going to suggest five things that you can do, five steps you can take to be a champion of free speech and thereby a defender of liberty. Number one, learn to stand up for what you believe. And, and to me, that means doing your homework. It's not enough to just repeat what other people say. You need to understand the arguments. You need to be able to defend them. Read books. Look things up. Be armed to defend your point of view, and your opinion, and your value system. Number two, learn to criticize without contempt. That means you're seriously willing to consider the opposing argument, not dismiss it out of hand. We see people, frankly, on both sides of the political aisle um, treat ideas that they don't agree with with contempt. They don't even consider them. Um, and that's a loss for both sides. I encourage you to learn to debate without ad hominem attacks. Focus on the message, not the messenger. Um, there are many, many ways to take apart an argument. But, um, but the only way to convert people to our side, the only, people to con the only way to convince people to think differently is to focus on the message and not attack the messenger. Learn to listen to ideas you disagree with. You'll understand your opponent better. You'll sharpen your own arguments. And you'll expand your worldview. And number five, Try to learn from people who are different from you. One of the greatest gifts of being an American is that we're still a country that attack, attracts people from every corner of the globe. Wherever you are, take advantage of that melting pot. Seek out people who are different from you. 
and learn from them. And as you do, they will learn from you. I believe if our core values are strong and our liberty muscles are well-toned, we have nothing to fear from ideas and people who are different from us. Rather, we have much to learn and much to share. Um, and I encourage you to embrace all five of those ways of listening and opening your mind to other points of view as a way not just to learn but to encourage other people to do the same and to never look for a way to censor or shut down ideas that you disagree with or you find troubling or you find offensive. Um, and I'll close with the words of a Pulitzer Prize winning editor, William Allen White, who was a very interesting person if you Google him. Um, but he said something I really agree with. He said, we can have no wise laws unless there is free expression of the wisdom of the people and, alas, their folly with it. But if there is freedom, folly will die of its own poison and the wisdom will survive. Thank you very much. <laughs>
bubble. Bubble that we <laughs> right. put ourselves in. No, we do put ourselves in that bubble. And in fact, not just on campus, which is a very good example, um, also in the media, you know, as things have become more divided and more partisan, people have gravitated to listen and read and watch only the things that they agree with. Um, I think, again, it starts one person at a time. You have to be willing to get out there and turn the channel and watch the other side for a little while and listen to what they have to say. I think on a college campus, one of the most interesting events, in my opinion, is not just having someone come to speak, but having a debate. And I think, actually, you might be able to partner with, on your college campus, you know, have the Republican, the college Republicans partner with the college Democrats, if they're willing to, challenge them, shame them if they won't, um, to have a debate. And you each get to invite somebody to, to discuss something and debate it. You might draw a bigger crowd, but you also, you know, open up the, the topic to a really interesting discussion expose both sides to the other side's ideas, um, find places where you agree, and, um, and sort of challenge the people who are speaking to defend their ideas because they're debating with somebody else. Hi, I'm Penny Starr with CNS News. I'm going to ask a, kind of a selfish question, I guess. <laughs> um, why is it so difficult to, to get a book published? I mean, people, I know so many talented writers, you hear the stories about yep. talented writers being turned down a hundred times, even the Harry Potter author, and that you have to have an agent, and, and, and even if you are an experienced writer, why is it so difficult, and is there some advice you could give to people who are interested in doing that to, to help them succeed? Because I know there's a lot of yeah. good books out there. No, you're absolutely right. And it's often very painful as a publisher to see wonderful proposals and authors and books come in and not be able to publish them all. Um, there are a couple factors that have, a couple of things that have changed a lot, as I alluded to, um, in the past even five years in the book publishing business. And probably the single biggest one is Amazon. And as Amazon has become a bigger and bigger player in the book world, book retailing and book publishing, um, they've driven out a lot of brick-and-mortar stores. So there are fewer places where you can go and look at a physical book. Set aside the whole question of ebooks entirely. Amazon still sells more print books now than anybody else. They're the single biggest seller of print books. And if you combine print books and ebooks, they now represent about 40% of the I know of the book business. That's a dangerous thing in, in a business setting for one account to represent such a big percentage of your business. So um, the reason that has had a withering effect on new authors particularly is what I often refer to as the death of discovery. It's so much harder to for a customer, a reader, to discover a new author because there are so many fewer uh, bookstores and retail environments where you can sort of wander through and there's a book on the table next to a famous author that you first went to look at and then, oh, what's this right next to it? That looks interesting. That is almost entirely gone, certainly at Amazon. That's not the way um, they populate and put in front of you what they want you to see. And so, um, so it's harder and harder for new authors and um, authors without a big platform 
to be discovered. And so that has produced this vicious circle where, um, you know, you can't get published unless you've already been published and had a wonderful success because publishers are worried that even if they take a risk and publish that book, they won't get any, they won't be able to get any of the retailers to take it, to stock it and and display it. So um, in the same way that our sort of political discourse has become very divided and bifurcated, um, book publishing has become that way too, where you have, you know, a great concentration of the big, giant, famous name brand authors who just keep putting out books and the bookstores keep putting them on the shelves and that's an easy sell. Mm -hmm. And then you've got the occasional unknown, you know, surprise, J.K. Rowling or others, um, coming out of nowhere and very little in between. And so I guess the short answer, that was the long answer, the short answer is it's, a, it's mostly a function of the business of publishing that there is such a resistance to um, new authors and unproven authors and authors without a platform at retail. You just can't get that book, those books out. And unfortunately for us, you know, no matter how wonderful a book is, if nobody buys it or nobody reads it because you can't get it into the stores, you can't afford to publish it. It is frustrating. Thank you. Sure. Yes. Uh, okay, I have my own question. Okay. Now I have the mic. Um, I'm an English major at Grove City College, which is a small Christian, yep. conservatively, or politically conservative college. And um, I just got through a class um, on literary criticism uh, a couple semesters ago. And um, it was all, it was a lesson in charitability and how we are charitable to all of these um, literary <laughs> critics from the beginning of writing um, up until now to people who are still alive and still criticizing literature. And there are definitely people who I think are crazy, but they have made their mark on literary history. And now, um, you know, as you get into the, f- there was the feminist movement and people, you know, were averse to hearing those thoughts. But now I'm sitting in a class hearing about this. And I'm like, I don't necessarily agree with everyone, but what a great place we live in and what a great school I go right. to to be able to read these people and understand, oh, this could be a message behind what I'm reading or this is what other people get out of these readings. And now we have schools trying to say, we shouldn't read Shakespeare because he's an old white guy. So as a publisher, as an English major, what is your response to schools who are trying to diversify our English language by um, taking away major players? Yeah, it's very, very frustrating. I mean, ultimately, um, I think it is possible, and this is a long play, but it is possible that a lot of those um, very liberal institutions, including the one I graduated from, um, will price themselves out of business. Or will they will get to the point where they are so ridiculous, well, they're already at the point where they're so ridiculously expensive, and the people who are graduating are increasingly having trouble getting a job that could possibly, um, you know, pay back for what the cost of the of the college was. That I think a lot of people are starting to realize that um, that college education isn't worth it. 
is not worth the money you're that we parents are spending. Um, I mean, voting with your pocketbook is probably the most powerful thing we can all do. And if we refuse to support and spend money on, on things, like anything in a free market, those things will die or at least shrink. Um, I think all, but I think shorter term, um, it is all of our responsibility to insist as much as we can and in any way we can that, um, that there's nothing wrong with introducing new voices. The problem isn't that, in my mind, the problem isn't introducing authors from different cultures and different backgrounds. That can be fascinating. The problem is, is giving a value judgment and saying those are good and all of Western civilization is bad. Not only is that ridiculously incorrect when you look at history, but it also is just as, um, obviously, just as close-minded as, as it is to only read, you know, the, the works of one author or one genre. So um, I think we have to call them on it and say, if you really believe in opening our eyes and broadening horizons, that is not consistent with getting rid of things. It is only consistent with adding new things. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's as simple as um, which courses you sign up to take. There are, you know, my oldest daughter is about to teach a course for the first time as a, as a uh, grad student. And, um, and it is very clear that the administration at a quite a liberal institution where she is, um, is very concerned about having uh, classes that kids sign up for. Sign up for class, you know, vote with your, <laughs> with your enrollment. Um, you know, sign up for, for classes and professors that are open-minded and then embrace, um, you know, real diversity of thought and opinion as opposed to those who don't. Um, I think that even that little step can, can make a difference. Thank you. Sure. Any other questions? how to phrase this, but uh, Camelia uh, Peglia, you know, she's a superb writer, mm -hmm. and she's uh, so far left, and a lesbian, the whole thing, but she's a, she's a wonderful person. And uh, she did say a couple of years ago, she was screaming and saying, because she teaches women's studies, where are the books? Where, I have nothing to teach. And so, uh, that, that is my question. What do they teach? You know, <laughs> how, how, what right. do they teach? Well, there seem to be, it seems to me, there are a lot of made-up, you know, disciplines and, and majors and subjects that are more an expression of a political statement than an expression of any kind of academic rigor or pursuit or substance. Um, but again, you know, you, you do have to eventually have enough students signing up to, to keep that going and to keep that funded. So, um, you know, I've actually seen places where they've sort of collapsed two sort of ridiculous sounding majors or departments into one because there, there wasn't enough to teach, there wasn't anything there there. And, um, and eventually that actually can help, um, you know, shine a little bit of light as to whether or not there's substance there or not. 
Sure. Yes. <laughs> um, hi. Thank you so much um, sure. for speaking. I was just wondering, so you talk a lot about um, being able to have conversations with people about different ideas, but at the same time, you're also talking about sort of the radical obscurantism of the left and how they're just trying to shut it down. Um, can you say something more about like how those two, like when someone is actually just a fanatic, like would you try to convert them? What's your response at that point? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's it, certainly it's very tempting to either not engage with somebody who is completely closed-minded um, or to sort of sink to their level. And my advice is to encourage you not to sink to their level. Um, and and I say that. Well, for two, for several reasons. One, we're all better than that. Um, two, it's not a good example. Um, and three, in in the end, I think while you may never convert that person, there are often other people listening. There are often other people around who either are there watching and listening, or who hear about the exchange afterwards, and the people that. Um, that you may be able to influence may, may never be, you know, that individual who is so close-minded and so um, positive that they're right and unwilling to listen to another point of view. Um, that may not be the person you're going to be have any impact on, but there, that's just one person. And in fact, again, oftentimes you find that a lot of other people, a lot more people, end up watching that kind of exchange, hearing that kind of exchange, knowing that something happened. And, um, and it can be very obvious who is willing to discuss and debate and defend their ideas and who isn't. And that kind of example can actually make a bigger difference than converting that one person who's never going to change their mind. That's my advice. <laughs> Yes. Uh, I, I'll just share, share this with you. When I went to University of Toronto, and uh, I was in an English class, and, uh, and I knew he started off and he said, and his whole thing was uh, the myths of the Bible and the myths in Genesis. And I was sitting there absolutely terrified, and, and, but I stuck my hand up, and I said, well, excuse me, but to you, they're myths. And, but in my opinion, they're not. And so then he and I had this discourse. And everything that changed in that whole um, class, because when he would bring up a poem or another piece of literature, and he would say, well, Della, what do you think? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's right. And I so mean, the difference you make you is not necessarily with that professor, but everyone else sitting in that classroom, yeah. Which is why, yeah, the most important thing is the first piece of advice, which is stand up for what you believe and don't be afraid to say it. Um, and if you do it in a, I think, in a respectful, um, educated way, you can have a bigger, you can make a bigger difference than you think. Well, All please right. join me in, thank in you. thanking Mark Thank you very much. much. On behalf of the Heritage Foundation, we would like to say thank you so thank much. Thank you. Thank you so much. And uh, to put your token in, we have <laughs> our uh, yeah, CBLPI tote bag.
and our Thank you. mug with CBL's famous <laughs> quote, no good deed goes unpunished, which I'm sure you're very familiar Unfortunately, with. Unfortunately, I am. <laughs> Thank you all very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for that incredible uh, insight, really, because you know one of the things that kept bringing up was was about higher education. Only four percent of college professors are actually free market professors. So it's, I mean, to to touch on that point mm -hmm. once again, um, signing up with paycheck, really, with with the pocketbook of you know with your enrollment, I think goes a very long way. If this is your first time at the Heritage Foundation, I would like to thank you and welcome you for coming. My name is Elena Richardson, and I am actually the new Young Leaders Program Director. And it's such an honor to be here with you today to welcome you to the Heritage Foundation. I also want to say thank you so much for our co-host, the Claire Boothus Policy Institute. Um, if you guys, uh, we're going to continue on to lunch, which is going to be out to the right uh, of the lobby. Again, thank you so much for coming, and we'll continue that conversation over lunch. <laughs>